Hi, this is Wyatt Rockefeller. And this is Billy Nell. And you're listening to Cinepod, the cinematography podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey Ben, how's it going? It is going uh, delightfully. How's it going with you? It's going pretty well. Hey, we got a director DP duo on the show today. Who yeah, do we, we don't, got? We don't do that a lot, but but we should do that more. I, I think it's actually a really interesting uh, way to go about doing it. Uh, you know, we, we learn a lot by talking to DPs, but a lot of times we're saying things like, hey, well, you know, like, how, how did you and the director work out, you know, this or that? And here we got to ask that direction, that question directly to both of them at the same time. We sure did. Uh, who's that director and uh, DP we got to talk to? Well, there's a brand new, very interesting science fiction movie uh, that recently came out. It's already streaming. It's called Settlers. And we have director Wyatt Rockefeller and cinematographer Vili Nell, who I believe was talking to us from South Africa, where they shot the movie. I think it's a really cool movie. It's definitely worth seeing. I love genre bending movies. I think about uh, movies like Logan, where it's like a comic book movie, a science fiction movie and a Western all at the same time. But it doesn't feel like any of those. It just kind of feels like its own thing. And this is a science fiction movie set on Mars and definitely inspired by every Western and, and has like kind of plays with a lot of Western tropes. But at the same time, it just kind of feels like its own thing. And, it, and it's an interesting, uh, introspective kind of character piece, but it's got, you know, plenty of action and uh, and uh, and I think a, a really an amazing look. I think it's uh, it's definitely worth everyone's time, if, especially if you're into science fiction, especially if you're into science fiction that takes an unconventional angle on its subject material. I think it's it's definitely worth taking a look at. I enjoyed it thoroughly. So we have them on today. And uh, Ilya, we didn't really have like a, a newsworthy entertainment week. We usually either find some a horrible COVID-19 related uh, topic <laughs> to discuss. That's true. Or, you know, there's something like in the forefront of the industry that's kind of hard to escape. And this week wasn't really a week like that. But there was something that uh, we thought was probably worth discussing for our close focus. And it was day and date and the impact that day and date's having. And we see it writ large uh, this week. As James Wan's *Malignant* came out, and James Wan, you know, he made he made uh, *Aquaman*. Uh, obviously, he made the original *Saw* movie. He's made like a number of outrageously successful uh, genre movies. Uh, I mean, he's made stuff in and out of the horror genre, but probably most of his movies are in the supernatural, Blumhousey kind of horror world. And uh, his new movie, *Malignant*, did not do well at the box office this week. Uh, made, it, it brought in 5.7 million, came in third. Shang Chi held tough for a second straight week. I, and and I have to say, for full disclosure, I have not seen Shang Chi, so I, I can't really speak to how awesome it is. I, I keep hearing great things. I just haven't had a chance to see it. But you know why I haven't had a chance to see it? They did not do a day and date release of Shang Chi, but they did do a day and date release of *Malignant*. And I and especially after what happened to *The Suicide Squad*. I really wonder if day and date is going to be the death of theatrical. Hmm. Well, uh, certainly the numbers don't lie. What's happening right now are the movies that that are getting those day and date releases are not doing as well at the box office. They're, they're just not. There's there's a certain number of people who have decided to stay home. And even if they have to pay extra, they're doing that. But those numbers aren't 
factoring into the box office. So I don't know if it's the necessarily the death, but it's certainly not helping. I think that um, you might see the the NATO, the, the North American Theater Owners Association, uh, really starting to push back on day and date because uh, it takes money directly out of their pockets. It's definitely, uh, it, it definitely seems that this grand experiment may be helping some in the streaming services to get new subscribers or new people, but definitely not helping theater owners. And if, well, if, and, and they're not releasing those numbers. So we don't, we don't know if Malignant's day and date release had anything to do with new people signing up for HBO Max, nor do we know if that had anything to do with uh, the Suicide Squad. And just this year, we have two more big, big, big Warner movies that are supposed to be dropping day and date. And those are uh, the new Matrix movie and Dune. And uh, I mean, like both of those are, you know, those are those are event movies that you would go see in the theater. But I, I got to say, I wonder how many people will stay home and watch them at home, even though based on what I've seen from the trailers from both. And this has nothing to do with the quality of either movie, because I don't I can't vouch for that. But just from the trailers alone, I can tell you that they are both movies that will benefit from being seen on the big screen. We, we've had Greg Frazier, who shot Dune on the show, and uh, he wasn't able to talk about it. He was so embargoed. He couldn't even tell us off mic anything about Dune. I was so excited to just even find out if they'd finished shooting Dune. And he's like, I can't tell you anything. But uh, I'm really excited to see it based on the trailer, based on everything that I've seen. But I have to say that if I can just watch it for free, I mean, like there's no cost to just watching a movie on HBO Max. If you're already subscribing to HBO Max, when they released Cruella or Black Widow, it was on on Disney Plus. There was a thirty dollar upcharge. So you're still there's still a little pain involved in being the first person to see it. Not saying that it should be painful to see movies, but you get my point. I I do indeed. I'm not sure what's going to happen here with the future of day and date, but I have a feeling that there's going to end up being some sort of pushback from the traditional business model based around theatrical. And there's going to be some encouragement of it continuing probably from streamers and folks that never had a, a theatrical model at all, like the Netflixes of the world. They, they really want people to, mm. they want to generate their money through people subscribing to Netflix. So as far as they're concerned, if they can do the bare minimum to get their Academy consideration and still just get it onto their platform as quickly as possible, I think companies like that are going to do it. I think some of the other players there probably have some, uh, some some divided loyalties and I don't know if we'll we'll see it play out the same way well I'm just kind of caught probably like a lot of people where it's like the convenience of watching something at home is awesome yeah tough to be but it, it really is but also I love the theatrical experience and I don't want to lose the theatrical experience and I feel like this might be the death of a thousand cuts of uh the theatrical experience if we have day if we have enough day and date releases like I understand for most of last year, why we would put stuff on streaming because it wasn't safe to go to theaters, but it's becoming reasonably safe to go to movie theaters again. People are going to movie theaters again. And I actually think if you look at the Shang-Chi versus Malignant, not that those are one to one, but like, look also Candyman, which is not streaming anywhere. When you see that, it's hard for me to say that I absolutely would have seen the Suicide Squad one way or the other. But because I have a three-year-old son and I don't get out very often, I saw it maybe the way that I, you know, that that doesn't benefit the filmmakers as much. And I don't expect audiences to vote with what will help the filmmakers. They don't care. They just want to see the movies when they want to see them, where they want to see them, which is why these windows have existed for all this time. You know, it was basically how you could go make a $250 million movie and then pull a profit off of it was by making an event and you know making maybe your entire budget maybe way more than your entire budget in a theatrical run 
So anyway, I'm concerned for the future of the movie going experience, which I, I treasure personally uh, way above the sitting at home and watching movies while checking my email experience. Yeah, it, I think it, at least in California, it's definitely still feels a bit odd to be going out to a theater. I think that that might change in the near nearish future. And by nearish, I mean, 12 to 24 months. <laughs> I don't know. In the next two years, you might go to a movie. No, I mean, I, I've, I haven't gone to a lot of movies, but I've definitely been to a handful of movies. And the theaters are going out of their way to be very sanitary and clean. And that that's been uh, and I've gone to a few different theaters and I, and I feel like the movie theaters themselves are doing a great job. But I also again, like I wouldn't I wouldn't tell you or anyone else who felt unsafe about it that you should feel safe. I just want to say as someone who even had covid and as someone who has been very paranoid about getting it and someone who has uh, yet to go to a sit down meal inside a restaurant in the last 18 months. I feel reasonably safe going to not jam packed movie theaters. Yeah, I get that completely. All right, well, why don't we get to the interview with the creative team uh, of Settlers? The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I am here, uh, wow, across our continent and around the world with director Wyatt Rockefeller and cinematographer Billy Nell of the movie Settlers, which is already out on VOD. You can, you can see it right now and in some theaters, and it's going to be coming out on Hulu in the fall. Thank you guys for coming on. Thank you. Cool. Yeah, it's so exciting. Uh, Ilya and I sometimes talk about stuff like this. It's so exciting to see something that just feels like an original story that doesn't feel uh, like it's uh, pulled from any other IP or or if it is, it's something I, I haven't been inundated with my entire life. You know, it's not a, a nothing against James Bond movies and superhero movies, but it's great to see something that's kind of an original, cool sci-fi movie. So Wyatt, why don't you start? Can you just kind of give us the the elevator pitch for the movie? So it is about a young girl and her parents living on a homestead on the remote outskirts of Mars. Mars as it may be one day when we've, we're in the process of changing it uh, to be habitable. Mm-hmm. And they are effectively refugees from Earth and all seems okay. They're, they're getting by, but then strangers appear in the hills and things go south from there. And I'll leave it at that. So when I watched the movie, it really had the vibes of an old Western, but just, you know, fused with science fiction-y stuff. But the science fiction stuff and even the Western stuff seems to kind of drop to the background of the storytelling. And maybe this is for both you and Villy. Even the compositions of the shots, the way it was lit, it really felt informed by old Westerns. Is What were your inspirations? For sure. I, I, I do think of it first and foremost as a Western. You know, it is people living trying to survive on the lawless outskirts. And also it being an immigrant story, you know, these these are folks from who've fled Earth. I think Westerns are almost always immigrant stories. You know, they are about people mm. building new life in in an often hostile place. So that very much informed the visual approach to it. But it actually was only when I had the idea, because I had the plot initially, it was only when I had the idea to set it on this partially terraformed Mars that I thought, okay, hey, this could be a feature. So it is a mix of mix of these different genre elements, but for sure from a cinematography standpoint, you know, looking at obviously this sort of the John Ford era, but then later like Sam Peck and Peckinpah and, and Sergio Leone. Like oh, for those, sure, yeah. Those revisionist Westerns that, that came after were, I think, certainly hugely influential for me. It's something that Billy and I discussed. And definitely from a visual standpoint, I think Westerns were probably the most influential. 
Yeah, I think I think from my standpoint, and it maybe it's sort of a general philosophy and how I see see filmmaking and how I see my part in it. You know, why it comes with the story, he's got the script, he's got these references, these ideas, and they're very clear. You know, in our case specifically, why it's lived and breathed the story for a very long time before I came on board as a director writer would. But there were these initial influences, and I see them as influences more than references. Because so many other aspects become influences. I mean, you you know, we went on location scouts, we found these spaces and they and the landscape itself kind of tells you what to do, tells you you know how to possibly represent it. You know, you touch on other films that might have some some cues towards Mars or represent Mars in a certain way, but you quite quite quickly realize you, you should touch on it to see what people have done, but quite quickly kind of back away from it and just represent the film as, as what the film wants to be in its own right. And so there's clearly mm-hmm. a Western influence. There's a house on the hill kind of feel to it. But in essence, the story demanded that in its own right. And that's why White was saying, you know, we had, we had some ideas, we had some references, but we soon kind of put them far behind us and just made the film the way it wanted to be filmed. I think that's a good point and something worth drilling down on. it Because we are working in genre, that we were very aware of not only people's, you know, the popular imagination of what Mars looks like, but also sci-fi in general and, and Westerns in general to, to a certain extent, that there is this vocabulary that we wanted to chart our own course away from, but also be in dialogue with. Because I think if you get too far away from what people think of the future, you know, or, or what it'll be mm-hmm. like on another planet, you risk breaking that thread and people feeling, oh, no, that It'll, that's not going to look anything, <laughs> anything like that. And yeah. so it was imp- important to be aware of what we were, even if we were breaking away from something, being aware of what we were breaking away from. Well, and, and I, I really appreciated the way you guys uh, present Mars in, in a sense. I mean, we have more modern movies like The Martian, which probably came out more years ago than I think it did, but, you know, is relatively recent and showed it somewhat realistically. But like, you know, because it's the red planet, when you see it in portrayed in movies, especially, you know, like you go 20 years back to movies like Mission to Mars or Red Planet, there's always this need to tinge it and make it look an alien color. But when you see footage from the Mars rover or whatever, it just kind of looks like you're out in the middle of a desert on Earth with kind of a paler blue sky, but it's it doesn't look like red, 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 red everywhere. You know, it's it's warm tones, but it's not red. And I actually felt like your film showed Mars more the way it looks when I see it in actual pictures of Mars than it does in cinematic portrayals of Mars. Were you basing it on uh, actual footage from Mars, the, the, the look you were going after and the locations that you were going to film in? Well, I think um, the one thing I would say is, I mean, we, we all had representations of Mars in our mind, which whether it's sort of a graphic novel or a, or some, some, mm-hmm. some filmic references. But I truly felt that some of those references are kind of like, um, uh, they're like stamped or like inked with like orangey yeah. overflow. And, and simply to my eye, that's just not appealing. I mean, maybe for a, you know, if it's a couple of scenes, that's part of a, a film, but uh, for an overall look, that's really going to deplete the eye of like a uh, visual interest. So that was one mm-hmm. sort of like sensibility, you know, that was ever wary of, but we had some logic applied to the whole process. You know, we, we looked at images from like Mars Rover and any images we could find that s- seemed to be represented better, but there is also the logic of being trapped inside their, their globe, inside their um, dome. Sorry. That's the Spoiler word. Bio dome. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I'm sorry to, yeah, sorry to yeah. poly short. Anyway. Yeah. So, so be- because 
because we are trapped in uh, in the dome, we sort of like imagine the simulation of, of what this dome's texture would be, what it could be made of. But if you imagine any kind of dome and structure, whatever the material is, there's refraction of light and there's there's many possibilities at that point. And that did give us a sense of freedom of how to either color it or uncolor it. And then there's also a big queuing point. I mean, the film wasn't quite edited in the way it was scripted originally. The, the fact that they're on Mars now gets revealed fairly early in the film. But originally it was like, you know, a, a period into the the film where you realize, holy shit, we're looking at Mars here. It just, it seemed like some kind of future. And then it gets revealed. So it was very important not to overstate that point from the word go. So there were many elements involved. And I, and I think, you know, staying pure to science, uh, logical science is, is important. But I think what's more important is like the film itself and just telling the story. I mean, I kept telling friends or family at we're shooting a family drama for the most part happened to be set in Mars happened to be in the future and they happened to be trapped and then you know there's western elements and all sorts but for the most part it's this the little family structure that dealing with whatever the issues there are at the time and I think by overstating a specific element I think you would do it just justice to it to some degree the movie feels very compositionally driven. Like there seems to be such a, a strong, like I just kept noting over and over again, the strong compositions, like the main girl in front of that circular window, or even when we're outside and people are hiding behind obstacles or something like it didn't feel um nothing wrong with covering a scene, you know, master close up, close up, but it didn't feel like that kind of coverage. It felt more designed all the way through. Did, how did the two of you come up with the, uh, the visual approach for how you were going to do it. And and maybe I'm wrong, but how specific were you talking about composition from the beginning? Well, I think I think specific to composition, I mean, that was maybe the, the lesser of our, our sort of pre-prod and our communication between me and White. But we, this is certainly the film that I spent the most time with a director designing the film, so to speak, shot listing and designing the film and how it's going to mm-hmm. flow and how it's going to play out. You know, we when I started prep with Wyatt, we had a, a specific time of prep and, and then there were some, some, some very fortunate delays, as it turned out, with, you know, some <laughs> cast and a few other elements. And we just end up doing more prep than, than perhaps, you know, to, to a degree felt like you know, we completely made this film top to toe so many times. And knowing that we had so much prep, you know, some days we'd sit in a, sit in a room together and we'd, we'd do like one page, you know, we talk about one page over and over and just deliberating exactly where the camera needs to be. What what do we need to tell? I mean, the, these are the obvious things that director and cinematographer would do together, but the amount of time we did spent uh, going back and forth was was tremendous. And I think, what it did inform, at least from my side, was the what what the story needed to be. So we, we hardly ever spoke about compositions per se, you know, where characters sit in a frame. But it came to life in its in its own right because it was so clear to us. And and I've got these beautiful memories of being uh you know, filming a couple of scenes with Wyatt and knowing what we want to achieve from a specific shot, I would, you know, as soon as the actor hits that note, it's just like my eyes kind of feel it. And I kind of look up at Wyatt and he gives me a bit of a wink and we kind of just walk into the middle of nowhere, so to speak, (laughs) and just stop in the middle of nowhere and turn around. And that's exactly where the camera is for the next shot because we 
spent so much time and, and we were so clear on and deliberate in, in that fashion. And I think for me uh, as a filmmaker, I grew so much from that process. It was, it felt like I was actually, uh, I mean, there's many muscles to exercise as a cinematographer. There's the mus muscle of, of, of kind of winging it, making it up and making the best of it. But this was the muscle of, of planning and executing. <laughs> and um, it was, yeah. it was a truly, truly magnificent and beautiful process. I mean, I, I yearn for another process like that. And, and so much has come from it, you know, opportunities that landed on my lap. But, and, it, and it is simply because this, this film has got so much intention through the writing and even in its structure. I mean, if you, if you look at it, it's clearly a complex film, but it's quite simple as far as the amount of elements we had to play with. And that's the beauty of it. It's, it's almost like a, you know, a, a masterclass in its own right because of that. I'm interested to know too, like when you have a movie such as this, where you have a very limited number of characters and a limited number of locations, what did you guys do to kind of keep the locations fresh? If you're shooting, uh, you know, the, the family lives in a building that's sort of a, I, I don't know how you would describe it, but it, it's a, it's probably the only science fiction-y, outwardly science fiction-y looking thing except for the robot, but inside it's very homey and there's like a kitchen and there's a lot of very important scenes that take place in the kitchen. And uh, one approach, the crappiest approach in my opinion would be to like just block shoot everything in that kitchen just shoot the kitchen out you know from the same angles or whatever but it it really feels like you're finding where you are in the story and and finding the lensing and finding the camera and the movement and everything in every of the locations that, that the movie takes place in can you talk about your process in making sure that it, it was building as it does as a story rather than uh you know checking stuff off the, the script and off the you know you know what i'm saying yeah i i do and, and actually to a certain extent, we benefited from the fact that the actor's schedule is kind of lined up with the story. So like we, we started with the family and then Ismail, who played Jerry, arrives and then Mel arrives and in real life. And so we kind of shot the movie in order. So we, we didn't just That was actually a question I had. I was wondering, because a movie like this kind of lends itself to be sh shot in order almost. In a way. I mean, we... You know, there's so many different factors and also, you know, like the, just the hours that you have a kid, a kid's allowed to be yeah. on set, you know, working with a child actor was also very limiting. And, and, and she's so we had to really schedule writer. everything around that. You guys hit the jackpot with her. She is such an amazing actor. Yes, she is amazing. And it's it safe to say that, not, that the whole thing wouldn't have happened without Brooklyn, too. I mean, she... I can't say enough good things about her, but she is absolutely amazing. Agreed. But in in approaching those scenes where we, you know, in some ways it's the same thing. It's people sitting around a table, but really looking at, okay, what's, what is happening in the scene? What is the power dynamic going mm -hmm. on between the characters? And as we kept returning to that same space, I think, and Billy, I'm curious if you agree, I, I feel like we got kind of more, more and more experimental and, and bold with our choices yeah. <laughs> and i remember at one point i think it was um continuity tapping me on the shoulder and being like that like that that's not going to cut you know your, your coverage of this of this table scene is not going to cut together and i was just like no no no, no. it's gonna and i i think i i then asked billy just for some <laughs> reassurance he's like no no it, <laughs> it uh yeah, it will and it did and uh uh, Are you talking about like when you had like the camera almost below the table and the and the edge of the table was kind of raking the edge of the shot a, a bit? So there was that, yeah. And but then even after that, after the time jump, there's a scene where it's just Jerry and Remy, and she's not talking to him, and he's you know making conversation kind of to himself 
But we shot it in a way where we really showed the power imbalance, you know, that he looms very, very large uh, in the frame relative to her. And we, we didn't get the counter shot to that where, you know, he's, we're over his shoulder and he's fully in frame though, and looks very big in the frame relative to her. And we didn't, we didn't get the other angle where, you know, over her shoulder, we just got a, a you know, a close up on her from a, from a low angle at the, at the table. Yeah, yeah. And we realized, yeah, we don't, we don't need it because we're not, we're not going to use that because that's, that's not going to fit what we're trying to say visually here. We've never had a, a script supervisor on the show, and it might be worth us talking to them because, you know, sometimes a script supervisor will say something won't cut. And I feel like their job is to be very conservative about that kind of thing. But it's like, uh, you know, jumping the line or something like that. Probably somebody should at least say, hey, you jumped the line. But uh, in the scene you're describing there, too, it's like you're cover you're covering everybody. Like, it, of course, it'll cut like you're covering him. You're on the same side of the line. There's not there shouldn't be an issue. I, I mean, I love that scene. I thought that scene was really well put together. I agree with you. I, I think the script supervisor is a key voice in all of that and, and really does need need to be the voice, the, the conservative voice. And just even if, if you say, no, 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 it's okay. We've got this as as is. It's good to have that person tapping you on the shoulder and being like, are you sure? Yeah. Let me jump in here real quick. You guys were shooting in a really remote location. So tell me a little about the logistics. I'm sure that there were probably some days that were, were pretty challenging out there since you were in such a remote space. Uh, what was it like? So there we were. Uh, we were shooting in a place. It was in the Northern Cape of South Africa, right on the border with Namibia about seven hours from Cape Town. And it was a place that was, I think a few weeks after we shot, the hottest place on planet Earth. Uh, and it got pretty hot while we were there too, 120 something Fahrenheit, 50 something Celsius. And there were three days I remember that were particularly brutal when it reached those temperatures. And not only did we contend with the heat, but we were also contending with some pretty crazy weather. But it started with the heat. Our, and our actress, Nell Tiger-Free, had heat stroke, basically. Then her double got heat stroke. And so Julie Fabrizio, who's one of the producers on the film, and my wife as well, she came in and came to set in a wig uh, and costume. And she is in a couple of shots of the movie, including a big wide of Nell, of Remy sitting on the, uh, on the edge of the hill overlooking the, the homestead. And then immediately afterwards fled with our five-month-old son and her mother who had flown 30 hours and driven seven uh, to come help with our, our five-month-old son. And they crossed the border into Namibia where there was still air conditioning because uh, South Africa had started doing load shedding. They had, so they were periodically turning off the power, which was a no-go for our, our infant. And um, meanwhile, while they're, well, they're now fleeing across the border, uh, Vili and I are still shooting and we were up on a hill with you know the full crew and we look over our shoulders and here comes a lightning storm in a place where it does not rain <laughs> and it hasn't rained in like 10 years and it's bearing down on us and i and you know we're surrounded by sea stands and baby legs and all you know all these lightning rods basically and, and i turned to the producers and, and we're saying like you guys call but i'm obviously like the last person who's going to want to call the day early and if I'm getting a little nervous, I think maybe maybe we should consider that. And they did, which was the right call. And as we were heading down the the hill uh, back to uh, base camp, I remember my uh, AD yells out, roll up your window. And I look out my window and here comes this wall of sand like out of the mummy. 
<laughs> just bearing down on us. And I start rolling up my window, but it's, you know, it's elect electronic. So it's just slowly going against this wall and coming towards us. And it felt like it was out of a Spielberg movie and it closed just before the sand hit us. And then when the rain came, there was this all hands on deck moment where we all had to rush to set and, you know, pro with buckets and, and save it from collapsing inward. And, but fortunately, we had shot most of our interior scenes because the ceiling did start to bubble and we were able to shoot around it. And uh, fortunately, too, we had wrapped our nine-year-old Brooklyn Prince just the day before. And so that was our biggest concern is that she would have to contend with the heat. So we avoided the worst. And throughout that whole thing, morale actually improved. And that that was the most remarkable thing is not only because I think the producers prioritize everyone's safety and, and made changes to the schedule in order to accommodate, you know, the the cooler times of day, but we all got through it together. You know, we, we all spent a, a long time on a hillside together in where we couldn't sit down because the rocks were too hot. And yeah, coming through the, I think those experience, those experiences really do bring people even closer together. And, and um, so it, it carried us through to the end, end of our shoot. Mm, good story, Hansel. <laughs> uh, um, so, 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 sorry, no, sorry, go, yeah, jump in. No. No, no. So, so I guess I'm going to overlap some of that because, I mean, to, to my memory, um, what you find in Fjolstrift, which is, as Wyatt said, is practically the hottest place on earth on certain days, is, you know, beautiful sunny days and that's about it. And, uh, you know, when, when the storm pulled in, when this dark cloud pulled in, it felt more like, uh, like a dream than reality because it made absolutely no sense to anyone. And no weather report predicted this. Uh, and so we, when driving out of set, there many people that, that drove straight out, you know, run for the hills. But I remember driving to set and sitting in my car watching our our set melt pretty much because the one thing it wasn't it was waterproof because there was no need for that situation um and then running inside and f seeing all these sort of like bubbles the, the paint peeling water leaking from every every possible orifice but the blessing on the other side is that once again come the next day you're in the hottest place on earth again and that and that baby dried up real quick the most beautiful part was, you know, you know, I had so many sort of nightmares and stresses about continuity and so forth. But when watching the film, th there is a, a time jump and there's a deterioration jump, so to speak. And a, a lot of things we filmed in the second half simply could not be art directed. It, 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 the texturization and the, the, the kind of paint peeling and, and, and the paint runs uh, certainly added to the story. So, yeah, thank you, Wyatt, for that story. It sounds like the logistics for this movie were, were pretty incredible and they were uh, something uh, all to themselves and I'm glad you guys survived. I think it's, it's great and you ended up with, with something uh, wonderful to show for it at the end. That, that, that's terrific. Well, thanks. And, and, and I would just say that really credit is due there to the producers and, and to production. You know, that it was logistically incredibly complicated and even the things that they couldn't fully control or weren't able to provide fully like Wi-Fi it was clear to everyone that they were they were looking out for everyone you know that they were prioritizing the crew and the cast and and their well-being and, and their comfort to the, to the extent that they could and uh that i think makes all the difference you know that uh, people feel like they're being being valued i was really impressed with your robot 
your robot, uh, I, I'm sure it's a combination of practical, physical, and computer, but it's really well done. And I got to say that sort of the relationship between young Remy and the robot is sort of like this interesting, it's, it's her only friend in some ways. And I really enjoyed aspects of that. Can you talk at all about the robot? Was it uh, a pain to work with? Was it easy to work with? How did you guys do that? So, so the robot, uh, or Steve, as we call him, was this just amazing process. It was, it was a process that, you know, I, I've wanted to make movies since I was 11 years old and, and used to devour books about ILM and, and Weta Workshop, you know, and, and just like all their prototyping and, and to actually get to do that process. And, and you're exactly right. It was a mix of VFX and Puppet. So it was this very long and intense collaboration between the VFX artists, the puppeteer, the creature builders to figure out not only what's this guy going to look like, but how are we going to execute him consistently across across all departments? And the starting point for me, it basically was like the, the form needs to follow the function. We need to really nail down what Steve does, how he fits within the larger terraforming operation of this homestead, and then have that dictate what he looks like. He started more as something closer to the Mars rovers as they are currently on Mars. The wheels and, you know, a long neck and they actually look a lot like Wally. So that was already an issue, but uh, we realized like, okay, if Steve, if basically his function is he's a hydrofracking tool that breaks open the hard rock and then seeds and you know soils it and, and eventually tends to the plant life that would emerge from it. And so if he's going to be dealing with sensitive plants, he, he really should, needs to be able to walk uh, gently. And, and so we switched him to legs. And then the other thing is that he, it was very important to me that he can't speak or, or even vocalize. And that's really because his arc is, it's almost the reverse of Hal from 2001, right? It's it, the, the central question. And it is, it is a question central to the plot of the movie is, is Steve capable of human compassion or is he just a tool, as Jerry says? Well, it's a real challenge to to make an inanimate object a character in a movie. And I also feel like, you know, sometimes we go too far and make it too cute or whatever. But I, I, I love the way you're describing kind of the inscrutability of it, because you really don't know if it's a friend or if it's just a, a thing, yep. <laughs> an object in their space. So that's uh, that that's really awesome. And I think you got, we got to throw a little extra credit towards Brooklyn Prince, too, because I, I don't know what it was like on set, but uh, that's the number one thing you hear about so many actors in uh, movies that are tons of CG or green screen. They're having to try to respond or act to sometimes a tennis ball on the end of a stick or having to, to react to something that's not really there, or only partially there. And uh, I, I know she's getting a lot of praise. I mean, her, her career is incredible in just this short period of time, and I'm sure it's going to go on and on and on. But like I know she was doing Home Before Dark around the same time. As, as this so you probably had to like just squeeze in your movie yeah. kind of like between right. seasons of that so I'm sure that was like all all, all <laughs> you know threading the needle and shooting mm. in summertime in, in South Africa it's great that you could somehow make the planets align <laughs> literally no pun intended that you could that yeah no 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 pun intended though that that you could like get this done in in that that short period of time so after now having done this this western sci-fi What's sort of next for you? Do you feel like uh, you you are into this genre and you want to continue? Are you going to go something out of left field? Which which way are you you going to work next? I am writing. The, the thing I'm most excited right now is I'm I am writing a script about the man who killed Rasputin. His name was Prince Felix Yusupov. Oh wow! And he was a very interesting right up my alley. character. Is it? It's oh, a yeah. very interesting character in in his own right. And. Uh, he was the second son of the wealthiest family in, in Russia, if not Europe, at, 
at the time. And while his brother was the apple of his parents' eye in the air, and and uh, he, he was this rebel and, and actually spent his nights living a double life as a woman performing in nightclubs and, and just had this whole other world that he was a part of, which it's all real. Yeah. And, and then his brother was killed in a duel and he maybe contributed to it, but sort of provoked things that, that got moved it to that point. And, and after his brother's death, just completely turned his back on who he was and, and really tried to become his brother and, and fulfill that role in the eyes of his parents. And that led him down this road to try to save Russia from the, this, you know, evil sexual deviant Rasputin. And that, that was at least the myth about him. And uh, the, the story that I'm telling really takes place the night of the murder, at least the first two acts do. And it is, might describe it as a sort of a tragic comedy about this guy who is trying to kill, is at war with himself. He's trying to kill this part of himself that he's come to believe is abhorrent. And the guy just won't die. <laughs> because as the myth goes, that Felix in later years created or perpetuated, you know, he had to poison him, shoot him, shoot him again, bludgeon him, drown him. And the guy just still <laughs> wouldn't go. Yeah, he like and, shoved him under under a hole in the ice. That was how they did it, right? Yeah. And yet the, a boot uh, didn't quite break through. And that's how they found the body. And, and you know, if anything, precipitated the, the, the revolution and the, you know, the abdication of the czar. And, and, um, and so the very world that he was trying to save and to, to fit into, he ends up bringing down upon everyone's head but it's actually only then though in you know the ashes as he's trying to escape russia and and steal the paintings off his own wall so he can maintain the lifestyle to a certain extent that he was used to do we see that he actually is now free to be whoever he wants and and it's i I see it actually as a story of liberation in a way interesting so it's what i'm interested right now hopefully billy is available (laughs) if we ever get the the funding for it and uh yeah i think it'll be a fun one yeah that sounds cool uh billy how about you what's next for you well uh i mean i can do the same pitch because i'm definitely going to be there so that's that's (laughs) hope at least but um yeah i mean i I think from us a cinematographer lives a very different life to a director in most regards you know we never really stop shooting and there's always something happening uh and subsequently i've already done numerous projects but there is things in a pipeline i mean uh, and it might be the same for many other people but you know films are a kind of a, it's like a slippery little thing in a way where you know you know you get you get projects offered to you and but you know they have problems in their own right whether it's funding costing you know and and so there's mm-hmm. so many things balancing and 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 at the same time and there's the you know you can only shoot be at one place in one time, which is which is a real pity for my wife. I wish I could leave half of me at home and <laughs> half of me on set. But yeah, so there's many things, many, many films in the pipeline. And and setters has been fantastic for me. I mean, I've had offers from from weird and strange places and resources that people people knocking on my door that it, that were before that before settlers never never knew I existed so it's been a wonderful process for me and and for a project to show a what I can do but b allowing people to to to, to invite me to have another experience like that um so yeah i mean i i, I don't want to be specific about what's next but but there is there's a ton of things happening and at the same time my normal life is is filming commercials to allow me to a make a living, but to also be available when anybody calls, you know, it's like when when Wyatt says, "Listen, I got a film in a couple of months." I'm like, "Well, that's easy for me now," you know. And what makes it even easier is that I I really try and choose only the projects that talk to me, that invite me in. Uh, I'm in a privileged situation where I don't really have to you know take on projects to pay bills and so forth because my normal life does that for me. 
And so, you know, when White makes this sell, it's like, yes, White, we need to make this film. This is beautiful. You know, I love how you guys got excited about that because it's clearly such a wonderful like film. So that's me. It's just making making more more of the same and more more different films as we go. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it. Where can people find you guys online? Uh, we'll go with Wyatt first. I'm private on Instagram, but Twitter is at uh, W Rockefeller. Cool. And Vili, where can people find your work? Is, do you have an online reel or uh, Instagram or something where people can see your work? It's uh, villinull.com is my, my website. And in, Instagram handle is um, Vili underscore null underscore S-A-S-C, which is the South African Society of Cinematographers. And I'm not too active on that, to be honest, but it but it is a sort of punchline in and way to find me. That's for sure. <laughs> well, cool. Well, uh, so we just want to encourage anyone listening to this, check uh, check out Settlers on VOD. It's out right now and it will be on Hulu uh, this October. Thank you guys so much for uh, making the time and uh, really enjoyed your film. I'm really uh, looking forward to whatever you do next, especially if it's about the man who murdered Rasputin. That's just, that's an exciting story. Yes. Well, well, thank you guys very much. It is a real treat to be on, on this show. I appreciate you having us on. 100%. So that was cool. I think we probably should try and get more uh, director DP combos on here, or maybe DP production designer combos or DPs and editors. If you notice, I want to have cinematographers on, but it might be interesting to see the other people who they are interfacing with. I mean, obviously nobody talks to the DP more directly than the director, except for the gaffer. Oh, <laughs> well, uh, we did have just have the, you know, the, the team from, from Beckett on, which was great as well. So that's true. That's uh, true. So, uh, we, we got a small trend going and, uh, I, I hope to keep it going, keep it going in, uh, the remainder of this, this swing through 2021. <laughs> and now short ends. Anyway. So, uh, Ilya, it is our, uh, patent pending short end segment. What is uh, your pet obsession this week? Well, <laughs> I get asked by a lot of people about NAB. NAB has been traditionally the the largest trade show, specifically for the motion picture and television industry. I for, love NAB. NAB yeah. is a lot of fun, but it is exhausting. For technology. And um, yeah. the three sort of like largest, I'm going to say by by booth size, uh, uh, three can I guess? largest. Can, yeah. I, can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Yeah. Go ahead. Panasonic. Yeah. Sony. Yeah. And oh, so the third one. Oh man. Canon? Canon. Ooh, well done. So you you got nice. all you, you got them all. Now, they may not necessarily be uh the largest if you compare all the halls, but in the central hall, which really is about like production technology, uh Sony, Panasonic, and Canon. I mean, actually, that's what I was thinking of. I, I, if I was thinking if I was thinking with my actual brain, I would have said Adobe. But, you know, Adobe Adobe takes up a pretty big footprint there. There's definitely in the South Hall. There's sort of a different uh, a, a different yeah. uh, bent of of booths, but um, in the Central Hall, those three manufacturers take up a huge amount of real estate, and all three of them have now announced uh, pulling out of NAB 2021. Wait, all three, all three of them, and they're not the only ones. A lot of other uh, smaller companies have also said they're not going to go. It's like but it's Canopus's time to shine. <laughs> Canopus hasn't existed in a very long time. But that, <laughs> but but, uh, but your 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 point your point is well taken. I was actually trying to choose something that didn't exist anymore, so that they would uh, maybe sponsor our show. I didn't want to be like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be. It's AJA's time to shine. Oh, we're screwed because well, you know they still exist. Well, it is still uh, it's still going on October 9th through the thirteenth in Las Vegas and. 
while I didn't think that uh, the turnout was going to be particularly strong this year, now having those three power players all say, uh, enough is enough, we're not doing this, uh, and all citing uh, safety concerns being in the enclosed convention center and just the sheer volume of people and having to be yeah. respectful for the employees and everyone else. Uh, yeah, th- they're out. And I have to imagine the, like, I wasn't planning on going, but I think that the numbers are going to be way, way, way down this year. So uh, will it be the death nail of NAB? Will it be able to return in 2022 to the full strength? I mean, maybe, maybe uh, NAB will be able to come back in April at full strength. And, mm. and happen at the same time it used it used to happen. Maybe it's really going to depend though on uh, how how the world acts out in public. So, and I don't really know. Uh, I, having just recently traveled to uh, another state by by car and seeing how people uh, did not take the pandemic seriously or, or wear masks, I'm uh, uh, I'm not necessarily uh, enthusiastic about our chances. So that's why I'm saying it'll be soon, but like twelve to twenty four months. Oof. Well, it sucks that those three won't be there, but, you know, that really does mean that JVC can finally dominate. <laughs> uh, for, the, for the 19 people who show up, I, I, I don't know. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see what happens, though. I love talking about how I almost got in a fist fight with uh, the JVC rep once. It was not a fist fight. You got a little bit hot under the collar, but I would not call that a fist fight. God, I, I was so pissed at that guy. <laughs> the guy was kind of a tool. So. Yeah. Anyway. No offense to JVC, I'm sure he's not there anymore. Anyway. <laughs> ben, what is your short end this week? So I was asked to be on another podcast, and it hasn't Whoa. been published yet, so I'll uh, I'll let you know. But uh, yeah, I was a guest, and I was asked to choose a movie from a known filmmaker, but like a lesser known movie from their canon. And I chose a movie I'd never seen before, Sam Raimi's second feature called Crime Wave. Hmm. Um, never seen it before. I was com- I, I was familiar with it. I'd seen clips from it. There was a TV show that was on in the late 80s or early 90s called The Incredibly Strange Film Show. That was a British show. And they'd shown some scenes from it. And it looked really screamy and overacted and, and, and uh, arch. But I'd always kind of wanted to see it. Because especially, I mean, not that I don't love Sam Raimi now, but I was like a giant Sam Raimi nerd from like middle school through forever. But I had missed that film. It, it had not come out uh, theatrically in, in Orlando where I grew up. It also, I never seen it on on video at any of the video stores that I uh, frequented, even the ones that had lots of titles or eclectic titles. I know it got a VHS release. I just never saw it. So I'd never seen the movie. So I picked up the Shout Factory Blu-ray and I don't buy a lot of Blu-rays. Shout Factory is, is like one of the great companies to get Blu-rays from because they do very respectful restorations of kind of cult classics and weird ass movies. There's there's a few other companies like Vinegar Syndrome and Arrow Video that do similar things. But I got the, the Blu-ray and I was kind of procrastinating on watching it because I was like bracing to hate it. Hmm. And I actually really liked it. Oh. <laughs> I was surprised. Um, it is a it Sam is written, Raimi film. It's written by Sam Raimi and these two guys who maybe you've heard of, Joel and Ethan Cohen. I never heard of them. The the three of them co-wrote it. And I feel like it's not the strongest effort from any of them. And if you read like the IMDb uh, trivia section or, or, uh, you know, kind of read up on it, you understand that Sam Raimi's kind of distanced himself from this movie. The producers kind of took a lot of the things that made him him away. Like he wasn't allowed to work with the composer that he preferred to work with. He wasn't allowed to work with his own editor. So there were issues with the way the movie was made, but I was uh, honestly shocked at how much I enjoyed it. And if you watch it, it has the seeds of everything that Sam Raimi has become. 
and also the seeds of everything that uh, the Coen brothers have become. Hmm. Also, by the way, shot by uh, Robert Primes. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. And it's like, uh, it was made, I think, in 1985. The Coen brothers co-wrote it with him after Blood Simple, but before Raising Arizona. And hmm. it is what he made between The Evil Dead 1 and The Evil Dead 2. And there are some sequences in this movie that blew my mind. There is a sequence where this bad guy is is running through this uh, showroom that has all these doors and he's chasing Louise Lasser and she keeps shutting the doors and he keeps banging through them and it's like one after another after another and it's just this bravura sequence like so so brilliantly conceived that it's like something out of Buster Keaton and they get to the end of the row of all the doors and the last one is armored and the one and Louise Lasser gets behind it and he can't get through it and then she pushes it over and they domino out the other direction and he has to run through them and it's totally buster keaton it's like it's like it's done for real there's no cgi there's no there's no miniature they just had they just figured out a way to set this up and have this rather large actor uh run through it i will say that character and brian james of like blade runner fame the guy who played leon in blade runner are two of the most annoying characters in the movie and brian james is like off the wall, off the rails, annoying, very intentionally so. He's so annoying, it's kind of crazy, but it's almost confusing because it's like we know he's a really great actor, and for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the directing or whatever choices he made, it it's it's just odd. But it's kind of a an homage to screwball comedies and Tex Avery cartoons, and then on top of that, you kind of have Sam Raimi in his look at what I can make a camera do uh, mode, which is sort of, you know, the first third of his career was like just doing insane shit with cameras. And somehow Bob, like if we ever get Bob Primes on the show, I want to ask him about this because it's bonkers what they're doing with the cameras. The lighting is like right out of Suspiria. It's very colorful and crazy. And uh, it's not just a move like to say, has it held up? I don't know that it ever like it didn't it didn't really make a splash at the time. There's some rear screen projection stuff in a car chase at the end that doesn't quite hold up by today's standards. But for the most part, because it's so utterly stylized in every way, uh, it, I, I would say it does hold up. And it's kind of fun to see, like you see the two bumbling criminals and it's like, yeah, there's two bumbling criminals in, in like fucking every Coen Brothers movie, except the Big Lebowski that has three bumbling criminals. There, there are so many archetypical things, uh, Coen Brothers wise. There, there's really only one moment where something uh, there's a there's a line that is definitely uh, racist that mm. probably would not make the cut today. I think they were just being edgelords in 1985 and trying to be dark and edgy with with their comedy. And uh, that was the only out loud moment of cringe for me. But I think it's uh, definitely worth checking out. And I've been thinking about it ever since I saw it. Uh, The movie sounds bonkers. Uh, I I will totally Totally bonkers. I I love Sam Raimi. I'll totally watch that. It sounds it sounds I will. uh, I'll lend you the blue. I'll bring the Blu-ray to your office and we can watch it on your big screen. I I love that idea. I think I would. I'd watch it again. I will say the plot doesn't make a lick of sense. (laughs) I, I couldn't tell you uh, what what happened when that, it was that over. That has not like, stopped me from watching a bunch of movies, though. So, <laughs> no, 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 no. I mean, it, it's the plot is merely a, a skeleton on which to put together insane Sam Raimi sequences <laughs> when he was so young and so hungry and wanted to prove to the world that he could do anything. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, I'm pretty sure he's making another Evil Dead movie right now. Actually, if I'm not mistaken. I think there is another Evil Dead movie in the works. I don't yeah. know if Sam Raimi is directing it, though. I don't know if he's directing it, but I definitely think he has something to do. 
do with it. But I, I seem to remember hearing something about that. So if here's you, the thing I'll say about Evil Dead. I can't think of any other franchise, period, hmm. horror or not, that I can say this about. There is not one entry of the Evil Dead franchise that I do not love. I love I love the remake that he didn't direct. I love the, the original Evil Dead 2 is, you know, possibly one of my all-time favorite movies ever made. Army of Darkness, the series that they did, Ash versus Evil Dead. Yeah. Every lick of that, every frame of all of that was friggin' perfect. I love them all. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm going to temper my response and say I, 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 I don't love them the way that you do, but uh, I certainly It's because like you're them. wrong. <laughs> I don't I don't dislike I don't dislike <laughs> them but but no it's not not uh they they are my all of them are my happy place wow. I've probably watched the original Evil Dead the fewest times in my life now did you watch the TV series Ash versus the Evil Dead did you watch that as I, well if you if you listen to the sentence I just said yes, yes I mentioned okay, that okay. yes I love Ash you versus love, Evil Dead okay uh, for a second I guess when you were saying it though when it came out of your mouth it, it sounded like to me like it was like part of that that franchise as a as a as a feature but no yes there was a TV series I never watched that TV series so <sighs> I, I, it was so awesome I mean <laughs> you have to accept that as a TV series it's very different but they brought Bruce Bruce Campbell back as Ash and he's like still trying to be like cool sexy hip guy but he's also like in his 60s and has to wear a girdle and stuff and like what I can say of Bruce Campbell is he's like the least vain actor who ever lived because he doesn't care how ridiculous he looks in any in anything he does but then he still has to fight those goddamn deadites and there were moments that were a serious nostalgia trip like in, in one episode they recreated the cabin from Evil Dead 2 so uh like almost perfectly it was just a crazy nostalgia moment for me to to watch that but um i love his work and i love all of those movies and you know i mean sam raimi has an amazing career outside of that there's i think seriously only one sam raimi movie i've still never seen and that was his kevin costner baseball movie for the love of the game never saw that saw literally everything else he's ever directed yeah, I, I missed that one, too. I, I, I don't have the detailed viewing of his filmography the way that you do, but loved movies like Darkman, loved uh, all kinds of stuff that he, that he I have seen Darkman so many times. I was a projectionist when that came out. I had just become a projectionist. I was like 17, and mm. I would just sit in the booth and watch Darkman over and over and over all day and study it. And I can, it's one of those movies where if you gave me the raw footage that they shot, I could cut together the final film. I liked a simple plan. I liked Quick and the Dead. Love, I mean, yes. I mean, I, I, I've really the gift. The gift is is really good. Like a simple plan to me is like where his career turned hmm. because it was the first time that his movie was not about all the crazy shit he could do with a camera. It was about characters and it was kind of quiet and still. And uh, and I feel like that was probably what convinced the studios to give him Spider Man because it's like okay, well he can do the character stuff and he can do the he can do the visual stuff. Like he's kind of the full package. Indeed. Extremely talented. Love his stuff. Can't wait to see what he does next. Huge uh, fan here. Ben, I think that just about does it for time. Where can where can people find you? Where If they want to get more Ben Rock, where, where do they go? Oh, uh, I mean, uh, go to my website, which is benrockonline.com. And uh, if you scroll to the bottom, all my social media uh, stuff is there. You can click on it. Check it out. You can see my uh, my newest reel. Uh, which doesn't include any of the audio work that I've done, but uh, luckily for you, all of Video Palace is also on my website, so you can uh, you can just click that tab and listen to Video Palace. And uh, the thing I'm about to do, maybe one day, now nah, actually you'll never be able to do it because it's uh, behind a, a, a walled uh, it, behind a, a wall paywall. of pay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think I'll ever be. I, I'll, I'll be able to link to where you can pay to listen to that one. I'm sure. Anyway, nice. <laughs> uh, Ilya, where can people go on the internet to find you? 
Well, you can find me at most of the usual sort of uh, social media places at Ilya Friedman. That's where I'm at. But uh, if you want to find me in reality, in life, in, in a place, uh, I'm at Hot Rod Cameras, sponsor of the show. Basically, Monday through Friday, sort of normal-ish business hours. And if uh, you have any interest or need camera equipment, uh, hit me up. I'm happy to uh, consult for whatever you've got going on. We uh, love to hear from listeners of the show. And if you come into the shop, there might be a free T-shirt or hat in your future. Ooh. That's pretty sweet. Free hey, merch. <laughs> yes, free merch. Let's thank some people, uh, Ben. Who, who do we have to thank who makes this show possible? I mean, the number one person who makes this show possible is definitely Alana Cody, who is our producer, our very intrepid producer, who has uh, set up uh, the, the interview that you just listened to and several awesome ones that are still uh, that, that we have already recorded. They're already recorded. Uh, they, they but we'll be recorded. dropping them in, in the in the weeks to come. We should also thank Ben Katz, our intrepid editor, who uh, who makes us not sound like the doltish, fumbling, fumfering idiots that we are. And and you know what? We're gonna have to call K Zalatrachi intrepid as well too, because uh, it's just everything. Everybody's intrepid now. It's all it's all intrepid. Did I call them both intrepid? You, you did. You know, oh, I think man. I said once that I adored both of them. That, so there was a lot of adoration going just on. Poor writing this, this on my part is, is, is to use the same uh, to use the same superlative twice. Well, Case is very intrepid, though. So uh, I'll definitely have to include his in, intrepidulity in uh, in this. Uh, thank you, Case, for all your amazing music. And uh, we got to get him on here because, like, I like now now that the cat's out of the bag and we know that he listens not every week, but not infrequently. Oh no, he I will, bet it's every uh, week. Direct He'll direct message me uh, his opinion about whatever we talked about, and I think we should just get him on the show to talk with us. Yeah, I, let, I mean, we we know he can record on his end. Let's get our Kay's Alatrachi special panel episode. Get a couple other people on. I think it'd be uh, a lot of fun to get them all yakking about stuff. I'd love to get uh, who who's the anti Kay's. Uh, we shouldn't say this on the on the show. Uh, I'll have to figure out who the anti Kay's is that I can. Get. I, I mean, I have one idea, but it's not someone who I would want to talk to. Okay. Who would I want to talk to? Who's the anti Kay's? Got got to get that person on there. I want to just hear him argue. He loves to argue. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll figure it out. Either that, or we can all take turns playing devil's advocate against Kay's, because you know, he's he's got some strong opinions too. That's true. So uh, that about wraps us up. We will see you next week here at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.